On the first edition of the Care Mosaic, you're going to hear from two people, Prue and Kylie, who, despite being optimistic about the role they play in the lives of the people they care for, they're not the biggest fans of the term carer. There was no big sort of shift from being a mum to being a carer because it's sort of so closely intertwined. I absolutely love the idea of caring for um, our loved ones, but I don't love the term. <laughs> it really doesn't sit well with me at all. I, I don't feel like that's part of the things that I am and and maybe that's because I didn't expect it to happen or maybe because I've you know defined who I am by so many other things over the course of time in terms of my job or or how I was a, as a friend or a wife but the the carer part it feels like maybe it's a label for someone older both Brew and Kylie come from very different backgrounds and there's a significant difference in how they came to be carers. Hearing their stories is a reminder of how we can become carers at any stage of our lives. For Kylie, it was when her husband had a stroke and for Prue, it was as her children's autism started to require extra assistance. Both Kylie and Prue are very positive people. They love celebrating the individuals in their lives and they're both very passionate about what they do. Kylie's an avid runner, and Prue lives and breathes music. We're going to hear how Prue and Kylie came to be carers, what caring means for them, and also the assumptions we might need to change to make the term carer one that better matches their experiences. Let me introduce you to Kylie. Hi, I'm Kylie. Welcome to my place in Mentone, um, where I live with my husband, my stepson, and a couple of rescue pets, Bondi and Lily. When I first chatted with Kylie over the phone, we clicked over our shared love of running. Running means something different for every runner. This is what it means for Kylie. I think when I'm on my own, it's like a meditation in its own right, because you're just listening to your own breathing, um, you're following your footsteps, you're taking in the surroundings and it's very, it can be very tranquil and often on my own, you know, you're setting your own pace, you're not um, up against anyone else, so you're just sort of travelling the way your body wants to go. For Kylie, the peace of mind that running offers is significant. Definitely I feel the physical and mental benefits and probably the mental benefits more. It sets me really well up for a day if I have a, a good decent run in the mornings before work gets started. Running was also a passion that Kylie shared with her husband Scott. So we would do some training where he might be doing efforts and running much faster ahead of me and then running back towards me. So we kind of kept our running in sync and then there were days when he would kind of run a bit slower so I could keep up. And while running and fitness was an important part of Kylie and Scott's world, it's the contrast that make the difference. Our, our personalities are probably the most um, complementary part in that he's very chilled. He's very, very chilled and I'm a bit of a control freak. So between the two of us, there was, there was some real balance. So, you know, I would worry about more things. My job was probably too much in my life at the time and then... Um, and he was quite more relaxed about things. And so gradually we've come to a place where um, things are more balanced on both sides. So I definitely felt how chilled he was, yeah. yeah. Now's probably a good time to share that Kylie lives in Mentone, right next to Moorabbin Airport, and there'll be a few helicopters going by. Before diving too much into Kylie's world as a carer, I wanted to make sure you had a sense of what makes her tick. 
I like solitude, writing, reading, resting, just hanging out with the pets. Um, and I'm a bit of an introvert in that I would, you know, I'm always trying to find an excuse not to go out. So COVID has been great. It's like I didn't have to see anybody I didn't want to see for two years. So, um, and Scott is a bit more social, so he's happy to go out with his mates. He used to play golf every weekend. That was a large portion of the um, the weekend. So we had some shared interests, but equally sort of the period of time he would play golf, for example, was a great time for me to go for a really, really long run. For Kylie and Scott, everything changed when COVID hit Australia in early 2020 where Kylie suddenly found herself as Scott's carer. So we sort of got through the first couple of weeks of that and said, oh, hey, this is pretty cool. You know, we're not fighting with each other. We haven't got on each other's nerves. You know, we're taking it in terms to make the cups of tea. You know, it's all it's all good. And then um, in at the very beginning of April in that year, um, Scott had a stroke on a Sunday night sitting at home um, watching TV, no early warning signs, no particular health problems. He's quite a bit of a fitness runner type of person. We weren't incredibly, you know, we weren't the perfect body as a temple quite, quite kind of folk, but we were pretty good. And so that was when everything really, really changed for us. And it was at the very um, start of that COVID period when we thought, you know, the the worst we were going to grapple with was, you know, how is this pandemic going to play out? But it was it was just a very different fork in the road for us. And one which, yeah, changed everyone's world and, and everyone's experience so dramatically. So talk me through the immediate aftermath of, of Scott's stroke and what that meant for him and, and, and what that meant for you. Yeah, so I think, I mean, it, it began with, um, you know, that Sunday night and a trip to the, the hospital, three days in ICU um, and about five weeks in a rehab hospital. What that meant for me was it was just a it was a deep sort of elemental fear that you know the first three days is he going to survive what does it mean you could see how very badly impacted he'd been yeah so he couldn't move his right side at all so his um, right arm his right leg he couldn't lift his leg one inch off the bed so and in those early days he was having trouble speaking having trouble swallowing and so on so everything was just just unrecognisable at that point you know it was nothing that we'd ever experienced I'd never seen anyone you know that unwell myself before so you know it was an incredible shock it was also COVID meant I could only visit for one hour a day and there was only one person could go in for one hour a day so you only got a very short time to try and figure out what was going on and then from then it was just a whirlwind of every day of speaking to doctors and specialists and trying to understand what was going on um, he wasn't well enough to sort of interpret results of things. So I was suddenly the organiser, keeping all the family updated. You know, everybody wanted to visit, but nobody could. It was just a, I could only describe it as a whirlwind. And given it was only an hour a day that I could visit, I still kept working full time during that period. And it was very, that was very much an anchor to, you know, just do something normal for eight hours a day and then there was this very abnormal process going on around us so that was how it impacted me and for him it was just obviously the shock and then we were very pleased to see him sort of come out of it without any um, cognitive impact so he was then fully aware of what was going on nobody really could tell you what the prognosis was going to be like but we could very clearly see what you know it had been a very impactful impactful stroke in terms of his physical Um, capabilities. What was that 
uncertainty like for you when you had no sense as to what the recovery would be like? So even before you knew that Scott would be okay cognitively in that first few days that, that followed, how did that great unknown feel for you? Do you remember what you were thinking? Do you remember what you were feeling? I couldn't really think very much about the future at all. I couldn't imagine what it was going to be like. I couldn't, I wasn't trying to visualize how our life had changed. It was very much for those first few weeks, um, what's the next thing and the next thing. So he would be, he would have sort of setbacks. He would have times when he was really unwell. He'd be, have times, you know, where he would um, getting be getting into physio and you'd start to see, well, I think there could be a pathway here where things will improve. But the most troubling part was just that sense of absolute unknown. I didn't know anyone who'd trod this path before. You know, one of the things I wish for now is that you'd be able to be connected with someone who was about 18 months down the track and they could just talk you through, don't come to any conclusions in the first little while, don't think about what your life used to be like, don't think about what it's going to be like in the future, but just taking the information, take, you know, be as supportive as you can and... And just, it really is a one day at a time kind of thing. That's how I felt. Did it feel like you were just navigating it on your own? Yeah, it did. It really did. The conversations with, you know, doctors and specialists, I was madly writing everything down and you would um, put, you know, different parts of the puzzle together. Of course, you're madly Googling things, which is very unhelpful you know, to be, you know, consulting Dr. Google. And a lot of the information is about people who have strokes when they're 70 or 80 years old and there's not a lot about young stroke survivors and what their prognosis might look like. And at the same time, being um, COVID, you couldn't have people you know, over to your house making you a cup of tea. There were a lot of very welcome lasagnas on the front doorstep, um, which was lovely. But it really was navigating it on your own. And because no one else had really seen him, they couldn't really imagine what it was like. So, so they you know, lots of supportive phone calls, but you were just thinking, so what does this mean? And then if, you know, one part of it was he had a hole in his heart and, and I was not understanding, did that need to be repaired before he could go back into rehab? When he, when, you know, how, what was the sequence of events and how did this all need to play out? And from someone, I've always been in a job where my job is about facts and structure and plans and execution to be in just this, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow scenario was really unsettling. How did that uncertainty play itself out for Kylie? I asked her how she felt when life was at its most difficult. Um, The worst days for me in the early times, um, it just seemed so very hard. I was still working full time. You know, I was working from home, but I would be, you know, 10 hours at my desk. I would come out and then have to unpack the dishwasher, put the laundry on, make some dinner. And there were times when I was so overwhelmed that I would, you know, pull, put the range hood on, put the stove on, put the kettle on and, and sit on the floor in the kitchen and cry because, and I knew he couldn't find me. So if, if there was all this noise and I knew he couldn't make his way from the lounge room to the kitchen without, you know, letting me know. So it was just an outlet to say, I don't know what to do. I'm or, you know, I just don't know what to do. And, yeah, that, that was, they were the worst of the times, I think. Amongst all the challenges, Kylie had a great strategy to keep herself and Scott going. 
I made it a, a, a point of videoing some of the things from very early on to say, um, let's take some photos, let's see how your arm looks, let's see how um, your walking looks. And, and those things are really valuable now as well because I can say, just think about what you were able to do this time last year compared to now. So he's, you know, you can measure that progress. It's not just me telling him he's better, he can see that he's better, which is a really important part of the process and there were major moments when one time he yelled out down the hallway hey my finger was moving so these this hand that had been absolutely immovable for probably at that stage four months not a flicker um, one finger was twitching and so a tiny little twitch in his index finger and I looked at it and and I said is that and it really was happening and so we we videoed that and then Um, He said, I think it's trying to tell me something. 2020 and 2021 were isolating periods for many Australians, especially in Melbourne with its rolling lockdowns. For Kylie, there was a sense of stepping up as Scott's carer very much on her own. If she had a time again, it's something that she would have approached differently. I still had a sense of not wanting to worry his family and... Or my, fa- I didn't want my parents to worry about how I was coping. I didn't want his parents to worry about how we were going. So I didn't really talk to anyone, which is probably one of the biggest lessons learned of this whole crazy thing is just to find someone you can talk to about it um, and and whether that's a professional person or, or just someone who's been through it before. Um, I didn't do that well and I just I think I just basically hoped that you know you hope that the next day is going to be better and sometimes you'll have a few great days you know get some sleep bounce back see how we go tomorrow should we head down to the pier oh cool yeah (laughs) absolutely yep we'll catch up with Kylie at the Mordialic Pier a little later you're listening to the Care Mosaic, where we're looking at the diverse views and experiences of carers in Victoria. Now it's time to meet Prue. Hi, I'm Prue. Um, I'm based here in Warrnambool with my two children, um, who are um, 16 and 12. In setting down roots in Warrnambool, Prue has ventured a long way from Darwin and Alice Springs, where she grew up and started her working life. It was just lovely because there's so much to see and do right on your doorstep, so many gaps and gorges and things. And I was lucky enough to work for the Northern Territory Government in the Tourist Commission selling holidays to the Northern Territory. So I'd have, you know, long conversations with people who wanted to self-drive or whatever. From the Red Centre, it was off to London. My mum had never had the opportunity to travel um, other than Bali and she got married super young. So um, she just wanted me to not, you know, do anything and just travel until I was about 30 and not have kids or anything until then. So I went to the UK and got married pretty much straight away. <laughs> but did get to do a lot of travel, which was amazing. Um, and I, yeah, it's given me uh, a wanderlust, absolutely. A lot of people define carers by the people who they support. That's something I really want to avoid on the care mosaic. Here's a bit about how Prue found herself in Warrnambool, what makes her tick, and the incredible work that she does with disadvantaged young people in Victoria's southwest. 
both of them were born on the Gold Coast, and but it got sort of a bit too big and it felt a little bit dangerous. So my mum and dad were relocating here to Warrnambool and I thought, well, that sounds really nice and a bit cooler than the Gold Coast. And um, we came for a holiday and it just really looked like a holiday kind of destination full time. So we just thought, why not? Before talking about people who are in your world and... Um I'm keen to know a little bit more about you, Prue, and I'm sure the listeners are as well too. Tell me a bit about the the work that you're doing here in Warrnambool at the moment. Um, Well, I was in trouble for a number of years, but I wasn't like it was always in a customer sort of helping role, but I just wanted to help them more meaningfully, I guess. So I went back to uni and studied psychology and then managed to pick up a position here in a local community service organisation. Um, and I've been working with 15 to 24-year-olds ever since um, who haven't managed to finish school for whatever reason um, and just support and guide them to determine what a, you know, a passion of theirs might be that could link up with a job. That's yeah. awesome and mm. I'm sure full of different challenges as well Absolutely. too. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, because I guess we definitely take the holistic view that, you know, it's just not a job like, you know, you have to have somewhere to live and somewhere stable and mental health has to be good um, and, you know, you need to know where you can get support for different things and, um, yeah, I guess it's really crucial for us to be involved if they're not sure what they're wanting to do because they're sort of learning who they are at that point. So, yeah, it's really pretty cool to see. We know that family is really important to you and we know how, how important your work is as well too. What else is important in your world when it might come to hobbies or interests or uh, activities or it might be... Um, just ideas uh, as well too, causes. What else is important in in the world of fruit? Um, I guess travel, absolutely, but it's been so hard with COVID. So um, I haven't really been able to do much of that. So um, another thing that really brings me joy is singing, but I have a phobia about singing in front of people. (laughs) But I've got an audition to join a choir this coming Tuesday. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. And I've just started learning the piano as well. Well, so um, yeah, one of my colleagues um, plays the trumpet, and he gets a lot of joy out of music. And I thought, I really love music. Why am I wasting my time not doing it? So yeah, that's where I'm at. As we'll come to hear a bit later, differentiating between caring and being a mum is really challenging, if not impossible and unrealistic. Bruce's two children have autism, and it definitely shapes their world. This is what Prue said after I asked her how she would describe her two boys. Uh, Beautiful young men um, who have similar likes and interests to me in that they're very socially justice-minded, which is really awesome to see, and very kind individuals with very different personalities but um, really cool senses of humour. Um, both of them have autistic but wasn't because they're passive presentations so they don't have the big meltdowns that are often seen in public or at school or whatever 
took till they were 10 or 11 to be diagnosed. Um, so that was really tricky because I knew that the way that they were learning was very different from how I learn and I knew that something, you know, was going on that was more than just, you know, being boys. Um, how does their autism shape them? I think absolutely it's a part of their personality to some degree. Um but I think it makes them also extra special somehow. I just think that um, even though there's this thought that um, people with autism aren't empathetic, I don't think that's the case at all because my children are incredibly kind. It's just, I guess, seeing it from other people's perspective is tricky for them. Um, but when they, you know, step back and think about that, they can place themselves in other people's shoes, with, which is empathy, absolutely so. Um, and they're t- absolutely totally different personalities. One's really loud and the other's quiet. And when we get in the car, it's like, oh, it's really tough. <laughs> because one just wants to shout and the other was like, I need quiet. <laughs> so I'm thinking we'll have to get them riding their bikes <laughs> to and from school because it just gives them a chance to I mean, I hope that my elders can just sort of sing or shout or something and get it all out. And my other one can just sort of use it as a meditative experience just to, you know, feel a bit more calm and back into himself sort of thing. Yeah. How does autism shape how you might be their mum? I think it's probably made me a little bit more overprotective which is tricky because I don't want them to miss out on experiences but at the same time they're very easily led and there's a difficulty like they understand right from wrong but they don't really comprehend the full impacts of what would happen if they were to do something wrong and so it's just and you have to sort of keep things short (laughs) for them to you know or just, I don't know, I guess I need to let them live it. But it's just tricky because I want to protect them at the same time. Yeah. yeah. More from through a bit later. This is The Care Mosaic, a podcast about Victorian carers. At the start of this episode, we met Kylie, who told us about her experiences becoming the carer for her husband, Scott, after his stroke in 2020. We've since moved to the delightful Mordialic Pier, it's a little windy, and it also happens to be one of Kylie's favourite running spots. Beautiful. It's such a beautiful spot. How often do you come down here, Kylie? Oh, quite a lot. This is my turnaround point for a lot of the running that I do, so I get to come to this pier and collapse a little bit. There's a drink tap just down the way, and then um, and then I run back. But a couple of beaches further back towards the city direction is where we would actually you know, go down to sit on the beach with towels and, and have a proper swim. It's a little bit quieter back that way. For this first episode of The Care Mosaic, I really wanted to explore what the label carer looks like. What feelings does it stir up? What are the assumptions behind it? What do we need to change in the community to address some of the taboo behind the label? Especially when, as you can hear from the experiences of Kylie and Prue, it's part of life for so many Australians. This is what Kylie told me when I asked her how she felt about the label carer. It really doesn't sit well with me at all. I I don't feel like that's part of the things that I am and and maybe that's because I didn't expect it to happen or maybe because I've 
you know, defined who I am by so many other things over the course of time in terms of my job or, or how I was a, as a friend or a wife. But the, the carer part, it feels like maybe it's a label for someone older or um, someone who has children that need um, additional care or maybe looking after elderly parents. But it just doesn't, it doesn't feel right. Yeah. <laughs> and it hasn't felt right since the beginning I think and the contrast as well too seems to be a a big part of what it is about that label that doesn't feel right I think that's right if it had ended up that I'd been a carer for my parents having elderly parents I think that would have made more sense and you'd go okay yeah I can see how that can happen and that's um, you know a part of life for a lot of people but becoming a carer to your spouse is a very strange concept and not um not having any sort of slow introduction to that whereby you maybe there was an illness and a period of time to get used to it it was bang all of a sudden there it was so I think that's part of what's made it difficult to adjust to you use the word strange tell me more about what made it strange um just what it introduced to your life and it also I think it very much relegates your own the priorities you put on your own care as well you sort of go okay I actually need to spend most of my time in the carer role just making sure everything's okay trying to you know ensure that everything flows smoothly and that you know nothing nothing goes wrong and at the same time you go well I'm not going to worry about so much how I'm feeling today or um, am I having a bad day if I'm having a bad day it's nothing like the bad day that Scott could have and so you you just really push away the things that might have caused you concerns or or even the way you don't feel like you can express your own worries you're like I'm just going to keep everything as calm and nice and um, pleasant as possible and on the inside I'm going wow this is really hard so, yeah. I was keen to dig a little deeper as to what Kylie found grating about the label of caring and what we might need to change to make it a more accommodating term. She also told me about how a lack of understanding played itself out amongst her friendship group. It's, it's a group of people that you don't necessarily want to be part of and suddenly you are. So in the same way, I probably never noticed a disabled person walking walking down the street or never noticed someone who had been impacted by a stroke walking down the street. I can see it a mile away now. But carers, I think, are also in that group that you just don't see them and you don't really understand what they're going through because I don't think it's the same as just being a parent or you know bringing up children it is quite I think it's a different thing so I'd love to see you know it just identified more clearly and people you know being really focused on what are the you know the physical and emotional support needs that carers have as because they're going to make their way through that possibly for their own lifetime as well so it's just a it's it's a little group that doesn't get paid very much attention so I'd love to see it highlighted a bit more and more help. What do you think were some of the most common misassumptions that people made about your experiences and, and, and your ongoing experiences as, as a carer? Um, I found some of my friends didn't know how to talk to me anymore, didn't know how to, you know, really understand or, or, or possibly quite afraid to ask questions. And it's, and I think that's perfectly natural to be afraid to, to say the wrong thing. And, and so... Um, you know, for me, there was another part of my identity that was very different to how my friends had understood me before. And, and so some kind of just drifted away because maybe that was too hard. And the longer it went, 
the harder it was for them to re-engage. And then um, others have really kind of stepped in and been there every step of the way because it's not about the label of carer or anything else that's weird. It's just you're going through a really tough experience and, and you just need someone to talk to over the phone and that's really what it was in a lot of cases during COVID because we couldn't connect it was that Sunday night phone call when I was finding it really tough to take a deep breath and launch into another week is just to talk to someone about everything else but being a carer. And reclaiming that identity outside of caring has been an important part of Kylie's experiences with the Carer Gateway. The program that um, that sort of I landed into based on my needs was about carer coaching. So it was almost like a life coaching, well-being coaching, coming to grips with what um, it means to be a carer or how your identity has changed being a carer, um, ways to nurture yourself, ways to, to think about the things that were important to you beforehand and how you reintroduce those things now. So I was chatting to my... Um, Care Gateway support person a couple of weeks ago and I said to her I would just love one day when we didn't talk about the stroke we didn't mention it we didn't talk about the aftermath we didn't talk about rehab or this or that or anything to and just to not pretend it didn't exist but just to not speak of it for one day and and it's astonishing that you know you, you kind of do go through every day you can't get through a day without talking about it one way or the other and and so she was really good in, in just saying, how about this kind of strategy to introduce that? How about um, if you agree that maybe, you know, you're not going to talk about stroke for a day, but also you, that me, I'm not going to talk about the dishwasher being unpacked or that, you know, someone's left the, the butter out on the bench, which I do tend to get a bit in, you know, a bit snippy about from time to time. The things in the house that aren't getting being done is often a bugbear for me, so make a, a trade-off between the two of you that you you know you're going to spend a day talking about the things that are actually more pleasant and more forward-looking so you know just great advice when the practical supports are already in place but you really need something to help you you know I guess uh, manage your own resilience personally that's Kylie there talking about her caring experience now, let's go back to Prue, who has a lot to say about the caring label. This is the Care Mosaic. Um, we've changed location. Where are we now? Um, we're at Proudfoot's um, in Mornable on the Hopkins River, and it's pretty beautiful today. What does the word care or being a carer mean to you, and is it something that you connect with? I think it is a little bit ambivalent for me because... Because I am a mum and those caring responsibilities are sort of part and parcel. And as you said, there was no big sort of shift from being a mum to being a carer because it's sort of so closely intertwined, which it wouldn't be necessarily for other people that you've spoken to previously. Um, I absolutely love the idea of caring for um, our loved ones, but I don't love the term. (laughs) I don't know why. Um... I guess because the I don't know, I just feel like it's a little bit negative and minimises all of the incredible things that we do for our loved ones. That's really interesting perspective. For you thinking about that minimisation, do you think there are sort of some unfair assumptions in the community uh, around what it means to care? Absolutely. 
Um, I think for me, I sort of perceive it as sometimes if you're a full-time mum, it's an easy thing to be doing, which it's not, and absolutely is the same for um, being a carer. Totally, you know, it's there's such a lot of different domains that we have to look after as carers. Um, yeah, which is very different from a marriage or, or whatever it might be kind of relationship that you're in at the moment. When I've talked with different people for this podcast, I think there are and sometimes they're able to, to separate their connection with the person they care for in terms of their personal relationship and that they'll wear that hat sometimes and then they'll wear the hat of being a carer sometimes. But something I really appreciate about your view and your outlook when talking about how you are with your two children is that you like to see everything that you're doing in the context of just being a mum. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I guess, you know, when it comes to school and services and things like that, I see myself more, you know, as an advocate on their behalf, which, you know, is, is again, part and parcel of being a a carer um, but you would do that anyway I think as a mum what would you like to see change so if you, if you could have someone really get some insight and some and some wisdom or uh, in, into your world what would you like them to know I think that it's tough but you need to you know reach out for support because it's pretty impossible to do it all by yourself depending on circumstances and if you haven't got close friends and family to be your backup, you really need to get the same kind of thing from the support services because it's it's too hard to do it on your own, really is. Um, and you, you know, you often think that you know the best for your um, the person that you care for, but you might not necessarily know all of the things that are available to them. So it's definitely worth seeking support from um, external services. There's that excellent practical advice that you've given in terms of reaching out and being prepared to be open and, um, and, and receive support and assistance, but any other sort of advice from the heart that you would give them to around how, how to make that individual just even feel better if they're really struggling? Absolutely. I think self-care is really number one because if you're not okay, then it's impossible to care for your loved ones. Um, you've got to find something that brings you joy because it's hard work being a carer. Um, and life is short, um, so you really need to find some things. And I think it needs to be more than just mindfulness or whatever. It needs to be something that, you know, just the thought of it makes you feel good about yourself. And that's Brew on all the complex parts that shape what caring looks like for her and how we need to open our eyes a little wider if we're to avoid reducing all the bits of life, interest and passion that seem to get squeezed out through assumptions on caring. On this first edition of The Care Mosaic, you've heard from two fantastic people who have a lot to say about how their caring role has shaped their world and their own philosophies to caring. One of the most important reflections our guests will share with you on this podcast 
is the importance of self-care. And Kylie, our marathon running program manager from Mentone is no exception with her advice to other carers on the importance of going gently. If it was like a running analogy, I would say that um, everybody starts somewhere. No one starts off running full pelt and it might be you're taking, you know, you're running for 10 um, metres and then you're walking for 10 metres. And that was that was very much my, um, the start of my carer journey was probably crawling for 10 metres. And then eventually I've kind of put a little bit more together. You get a bit more knowledge and a bit more experience and a bit more ability to take care of yourself. Um, and then all of a sudden you can go a little bit faster and it's not so impactful on you. And for Prue, she wants other carers to think more about their own individual needs. Even though it feels like you have to put everybody else first, you need to be able to put yourself first to be able to look after them. Otherwise, you just you can't. It's like being on an aeroplane that's crashing. You need to put the oxygen on before you put it on your children. Um, it's so important to look after yourself because you can't look after anybody else if you're not well. So please look after yourself. And you might remember too that Prue, our budding musician, was also going along to a local choir audition. I couldn't resist asking her what she was going to sing. (laughs) Probably something um, from Whitney Houston because that's from high school and I can remember it back to front. So, but I'm, yeah, I'm not sure. That's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Um, Best of luck with the audition and thanks for taking me to such a beautiful place for uh, for a tea. Thank you. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to The Care Mosaic, where we've been exploring what it means to care for Prue and Kylie. Prue did end up going to her audition and from all reports, she had a really positive time meeting the other choir goers. Kylie's still running strong and Scott's recovery is tracking along very positively. They're both looking forward to going on a holiday to Queensland together. I'm Evan Wallace and thank you for listening to this edition of The Care Mosaic, where we're exploring the diverse views and experiences of Victorian carers. Enjoy this episode of The Care Mosaic? Unpaid carers can access free support to help them with their caring duty. Supports include counselling, coaching, group support, respite, tailored support packages, skills courses and information. Contact Carer Gateway on 1800 422 737 or carergateway.gov.au.